Well, good morning, Sunridge. We hope that you are doing well. Again, we'd like to thank Danny and Teddy and Megan and the rest of our Quest and Epic volunteers and families for the ways that you have so invested and loved on all of those promoting eighth graders and graduating seniors and to you class of 2020, we are so proud of the ways that you have finished out this wild and wacky school year. And to the rest of you joining us this morning, welcome wherever you are, if Centerage is your church home, or maybe you're visiting us for the first time, or maybe you're reconnecting with us after a time away, we are so glad that you're here. And our hope and prayer for all of us really is that this morning would be a time of recentering and refocusing us. My name is Lisa. And my name is Jed. And it is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve you as just two members of a larger staff family and of course, this church body. So we find ourselves here on a Sunday morning, nonetheless, where the responsibility of teaching does feel particularly heavy. You know, our world is we're experiencing it feels upside down and yet positioned to undergo some significant and much needed transformation. And in light of these things, even though I take teaching very seriously and I understand that it is a component to my vocation, one of the things that I've always taken great solace in are the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, where he tells the religious leaders that they are not to be called a rabbi or instructor, for they have one rabbi and one instructor, the Christ, Jesus himself. So for this point in history, when we find ourselves in necessary racial discussions or sweeping calls for systemic reform and ongoing repercussions from COVID, we see that they're continuing to generate questions about how we ought to steward our lives faithfully as Christ followers and people. And in that, I'm so grateful that I don't have to, and we don't have to position ourselves as the end-all, be-all, know-it-all teachers with all of the answers. And instead, we can, from this stage, point to and boldly share and proclaim Christ Jesus. And in light of these conversations, I'm reminded of Paul in the letter to the Ephesians who says he himself is our peace. And he has made both groups into one and has divided or excuse me, broken down the dividing wall between us. That is the hostility. And he's abolished the law and its commandments and all its ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. When I transitioned into this role a couple years ago, I told Britt that one of the things that I was excited to do from this stage was to sit or stand alongside other staff members and point to Christ. And you might remember last summer, Britt and I taking our first stab at teaching together, which I thoroughly enjoyed and I anticipate doing more of. You've seen Danny and me share this stage and we've done that across the hallway. And then this morning, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to stand here next to Lisa, who's a big sister figure for me and share about what it means for us to be a part of God's kingdom. And so another thing that I do appreciate about Lise is that she can empathize with the struggle to sermonize and she sees it as more than just an opportunity to disseminate information, but instead to point to Christ. Well, it's true that this probably isn't the way that I'm most naturally inclined to be on a Sunday morning. And in fact, 
a big part of me does wish that I were still on that other side of that screen where you are and where I have been for so many of these mornings there with my family. And yet it is a joy to be up here with Jed, who, like he said, has become uh, a brother to me over this past time of working together and doing life together. Um, he calls me a, a big sister, so I get to call him a little brother. Um, but it is a joy to be up here with him. And I can see how in many ways it does make a lot of sense for me to be up here on this topic, on this morning, uh, because here we are on the last morning of our series, God Is. And the attribute of God that we're gonna be studying this morning is God is sending us. And many of you know that my role here on staff has everything to do with mission, right? The mission of God and the mission of his people. And when we talk about mission, we are talking about sending. Those two things go absolutely hand in hand. In fact, the root word for mission comes from missio, which in Latin literally means to send or to dispatch. And we know that our God is on mission and our God is ascending God. And I'm wondering if when I say that, if anything, if any stories jump to mind, does that resonate with you at all? Do you have any images that jump to mind about times when God sent a person or people? Do you think of God sending out his breath in the very beginning in creation to order creation? Or maybe God sending Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the nation. God sending Moses to deliver the Israelites. God sending his word out through the prophets to draw his people back to himself. Remember there's that portion in Isaiah chapter 61 in which we see all of those acts of redemption that proceed from or are dependent on that Hebrew verb to send. And that sending imagery is so crucial to that passage that we could in a way reorient the verses this way. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives. He has sent me to release from darkness the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He has sent me to comfort all who mourn. He has sent me to provide for those who grieve in Zion. He has sent me to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And it is this passage that Jesus then applies later to his own ministry. And he claims himself as the human fulfillment of these verses of prophecy. And so in a way we can look to them as almost a personal mission statement for Jesus because God sends God's Son to save the world. And God sends God's Spirit to comfort and counsel and guide all followers of Jesus to abide in Him and remember His teaching. And then God sends God's church to bear witness of His love, acceptance, forgiveness, and redemption to the ends of the earth. We see this sending language infused in the Great Commission and other passages of Scripture like it. Remember Jesus in John's Gospel where he says, As you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. And then in John 20, 21, that says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And that phrase, as the, is so important because it means in the same way. In the same way that the Father sends Christ, we are sent. And in response to the grace upon grace that you and I receive and revel in every single day, we are to live as sent ones, to live as going people. And truly, there is so much to study in these pages about what that might look like. 
what that little phrase, as the, might suggest. And so we can ask ourselves, how does the Father send? How does Jesus send? What about the Holy Spirit? Who do they send? How does that speak into how we are called to live on this earth as Christians? What does it mean to be the people of the God who sends? How do we even do that as he intended? There is so much richness and significance in that line of study, so much so, in fact, that you can go to seminary and study only that very thing. And it's, in fact, what I went to seminary to do. To do. And got my degree in this fancy word called missiology, which when you break it down, isn't fancy at all. All it means is the study of missio, the study of sending. And so what a gift then to get to come here to my home church, my home church family, and together with other people discern what it meant for Sunridge to be sent out and how to do that as he intended. Our outreach associate, Lisa Stewart, and I spent months getting together every other week in my backyard just to listen to God, to sit before him in prayer, to really hear from him about how he was sending Sunridge out. The last thing that we wanted to do was build a big outreach program. We weren't interested in that. What we wanted to do instead was lean not on our own understanding or go forward in our own power, but to really know that we were responding to his voice. And so what a, what a treat it has been over this past year to sense God moving us out into the world as a congregation. So many examples jump to my mind even as I say that. I think about the way that our partnership with World Vision was strengthened through that time. And we were all set to host a Global 6K here that was to be a joint venture between invitational community outreach and international relief work for water and sanitation projects. I think about uh, being invited by a local elementary school to bring a mentoring program for at-risk kids there called Kids Hope. And we even had two phenomenal directors here from Sunridge already lined up to do that. Uh, we had a number of men well on the way uh, in their volunteer process for the prison ministry at the local jail in French Valley. Our partnership with Community Mission of Hope was going really strong. We had our Easter food drive in the works and so many of you were volunteering there on a weekly basis. We were in the early developmental stages with Every Generation Ministries to bring an international short-term mission trip to Senators here. We had a team going regularly to Dora Faith Orphanage in Baja. And I was thinking about bringing an evangelism class in the fall in the same manner and format that we did when Helping Hurts. But then boom, COVID hit. Everything changed in an instance and all that stuff that Lisa was directing, Lisa, Lisa, and you guys were partnering in, preparing to be a part of. All of it got wiped out, or at least more optimistically put on indefinite hold. Yeah, and that was monumentally confusing to me and really disorienting and actually honestly really discouraging because it felt like we had done everything right. It felt like we had sat before God and asked him to send us out and really listen to him. And we'd finally aligned our sails with how his spirit was moving. And then it was just all gone. And I really wrestled with that in those early stages of COVID. And it was, it was during that same time that I was in between Bible studies and I was walking with Teddy, our high school director, and she told me that uh, she was gonna lead the Epic students through the book of Mark. And I thought, well, I'm in between studies, I'll do Mark too. And so uh, I was there in my first, first morning by myself uh, in my early morning Bible study chair where I always am. And I cracked open Mark to the first chapter and there I see that word again, 
that sent word. If you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to read along with me. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So there it is. At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness. And you know what I realized when I was sitting there in my early morning Bible study chair and all my four years of seminary, literally studying sentness, we never once focused on that scripture, that instance of sending. And yet there it is right there, the same God who over and over again, we see in history sending his people out. Here he is sending again, but this time he's sending his son, his beloved son into the wilderness. Here's a picture of the Judean wilderness. Look at that picture, dry, lifeless, empty, vast expanses of unforgiving wasteland as far as the eye can see, a lack of roads for clarity and direction, lacking frequent signs or sources of life, remoteness, separation from other people, uncultivated, desolate, impassable, hopeless, weary, unfit for permanent habitation. Job describes the wilderness as a land where no man is. Jeremiah described it as a land of deserts and pits, a place of drought and deep darkness, a land that no one passes through where no one dwells. And David pens from the desert that my flesh faints for you is in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I don't know about you, but it certainly seems appropriate to me to at the very least pose this question or statement that in this time like this, it feels as though God is sending us into the wilderness. In fact, you can expect to hear more about that wilderness and the ways that thematically resonates with our faith journey because as summer heats up for the next several weeks, Britt's going to be launching a series called wilderness where we are going to be talking about the feeling of uncertainty that occupies us when we are in that space between what was and what we hope it to be. And many of you might recognize the wilderness as a common image or scene throughout scripture. We see the Israelites being sent into the wilderness. Hagar in the wilderness, the angel coming to Hagar in the wilderness, Moses fleeing into the wilderness. Elijah fleeing into the wilderness, King David fleeing into the wilderness, away from his enemies. We see John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and Jesus going to the wilderness to pray over and over again, these images of wilderness. And every single time, it is a scene of intense experience of stark need and isolation and danger. And yet at the same time, those same instances, those same episodes, are where we see intimate encounters with God and self-discovery and divine presence. The wilderness is where sanctification happens and testing of hearts and drawing God's people back to himself. The wilderness throughout scripture is never without purpose. It wasn't, there wasn't a way for there to not be purpose then and there certainly is purpose for us now in this time. Earlier, we looked at the story of Jesus being sent into the wilderness in the Gospel of Mark. 
And now we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke because Luke fills in a lot of the gaps for us that help give us clues into what the purpose might have been for Jesus in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 says, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil led him in Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up in you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished in all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So this is one of those curious examples in scripture, in the gospels, in which there was nobody there to observe what just happened other than Jesus, right? Nobody there to tell the tale, which means that at some point, Jesus told this story to somebody who told another, who told another until eventually it was written down for us to be reading all of these years later. And so for me, that tells me that God wants us to know what went down between Satan and Jesus in the wilderness. There is something here for us to learn about what happened to him and how he responded to what happened to him. And so this is one of those instances that we can seek to apply that little phrase as the from John 20, 21, as the, as the father sent the son into the wilderness. So he's sending us into the wilderness. And so what is there that we can learn about the pitfalls and the purpose that the wilderness presents to us? Well, we're gonna suggest three pitfalls inherent in the wilderness. And I'm wondering if you'll see yourself in these as much as they have acted as a mirror for me as I've journeyed through this wilderness season. The first pitfall, is trying to circumvent the wilderness. We can be so concerned and so obsessed with trying to get to the end of the wilderness, trying to get out of it, around it somehow, that we can miss the whole point of the wilderness. Looking back at that first temptation, we see that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry, right? And so Satan came to him and said, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Now we know on this side of history that Jesus could very well in an instant have ended the struggle, ended the suffering, the pain, the hurt, the lack, the hunger within that, and yet he didn't. He didn't. We, we know that he could make miraculous bread. We see him doing that not long later in the Gospels, but he didn't here because Jesus knew that there was purpose and value in the hunger, and so he didn't bypass the suffering in it. Jesus doesn't seem to have been obsessed with finding the easiest possible way or the quickest possible way out of the wilderness. We don't see him clutching and grabbing and clawing for a way to end his suffering apart from the Father. And I don't know about you, but I have been guilty of being obsessed with how am I going to get out of this wilderness? Actually, I'm going to amend that statement because I do know a lot of you, and so I can safely say that you also are obsessed with how we're going to get out of the wilderness. Uh, each, so many of us have that one thing, right, that's going to make it feel like, okay, we made it, we're on the other side. 
Within our household right now, it has everything to do with the educational system. We're wondering if Georgetown University is gonna open up so that our son can go back to school there and whether our local districts are gonna go back so that our girls can go to high school and my husband Matthew can teach again in person the way he loves. Those are, those are our things. I know that so many of you have much more urgent and dire and consequential things uh, than I do, which come from a place of privilege. And yet, nonetheless, when we take a step back from those fixations, if we can agree that there is always purpose in the wilderness, then we also have to agree that we are in danger of missing that when we set our hearts on getting out of it as quickly as we possibly can by any means possible. And so that leads us to the second pitfall, and that's wanting something more than Christ. When we reflect again on the second temptation in which the devil came and offered Jesus all the, all the kingdoms of the world, all authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world, if only he would bow down to him. What's striking to me is that in that moment, Jesus must have known how good it would actually be for him to have authority over the kingdoms of the world. Truly, Jesus is the perfect King of kings and Lord of lords, and so what better end for the world that he loves than to actually rule over them? That would be a good end. And so in so many ways, it would make logical and rational sense for Jesus in his love for the nations to accept the offer that Satan is presenting to him in that moment, but he doesn't. Because what Jesus ultimately wants more than that good outcome for himself and the people that he loves is a heart that is devoted in obedience to the one true God, to his Father. And so the question for me in this season becomes, what is it that I ultimately want? Do I want the kingdoms of this world for myself and the people I love, or do I want Christ alone? Do I want that good outcome, or do I want life with Christ? Do I want that good plan, that good plan for myself and my people that seems like it's totally in line with what God should and would want for me, or do I want Him? Those are incredibly difficult questions that we all have to grapple with. So then doesn't it seem that our temptation to want something more than Christ magnifies our susceptibility to believe the carefully crafted lies of the enemy? So here's our third pitfall. It's the pitfall of believing the deceiver. When we see the enemy's final prodding at Jesus in Luke chapter 4, we do gain incredible insight into the ways that we ourselves have temptation levied against us. Up until this point, Jesus is the one who has been succinctly reciting scripture in a way to ward off that temptation. He models for us Psalm 119.11 that says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. But at this moment, the enemy's tactics, they shift. He, in the final testing, uses the very words of Scripture himself. He contorts and twists them to try and malign and undermine a foundational need of Jesus, the ability to trust his Father. We read earlier, he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here so that the angel would come up and carry you and, and hold you and prevent you from striking your feet. What's new in this scene of the enemy isn't really new, however. It harkens back to the garden when the serpent tries to tempt and succeeds in tempting the woman and the silent man by saying, did God really tell you? And that hasn't changed. 
You see, from the very beginning, the enemy has sowed seeds of doubt into human minds so that it would not only cause us to question whether or not God is for us, but it would allow bitterness to take root in us that would eventually cause us to turn to self-destructive and self-preserving behaviors. Like a roaring lion, Peter says the enemy is looking for someone to devour. And shortly before that section in Peter's letter, there is a warning against pride, a call to humility. It's preceded even earlier by a section in which Christians are to learn how to suffer for doing right, where we are to rejoice in as much as we share in the sufferings of Christ, to praise God when we suffer for bearing the name of Christ. And so I consider those exhortations in contrast to the ways that we as Christians perhaps could have borne better witness in this season called COVID. I have to look at myself in the mirror and realize that I didn't do so well. How quick were we? How quick was I? How quick was our community to intensify cries of persecution? That which is both promised in scripture and really does seem fairly weak in light of the persecuted church globally and what she faces every day. And as much as my heart yearned to see us regularly back together face to face, it does sadden me to consider that the enemy may be scoffing at us. His delight to hear Christians up in arms about a temporary displacement from a building. Louder than any cries that we've collectively had together about the poor in our own community. Or abuse in homes. Or issues that really matter that we could be a part of solving the millions in the foster care system, or what about clean water and sanitation? I wonder what would have happened if we as Christians had invested any of the amount of energy that we did together into these things that actually have always pained the heart of God. Or what about what's ensued in our country over the last few weeks? What is it that the world is witnessing to us as Christians resort so quickly to how quickly have we flip-flopped scripture so that we're quick to speak but slow to listen, quick to call people our enemies, the one that Jesus tells us to love and pray for, how strongly we have emphasized divisions of racial and social and religious lines, how quickly we have cursed others made in the image of God, that which scripture so thoroughly denounces, that which the New Testament, forgetting its relational thrust, is to love one another and to bear with one another and to forgive one another, which, mind you, comes in the context of racial and socioeconomic and household divisions, Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female. You see, I think that the enemy has caused us to forget that our battle, our struggle, as Paul so eloquently puts in Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. Hear that. Our enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of darkness in heavenly places. You see, the enemy is not the Democrat. And the enemy is not the Republican. It is not the liberal. It is not the conservative. It is not Barack Obama. It is not Joe Biden. It is not President Trump. It is not the protester. It is not the police officer. It is not the black community or the Black Lives Matters movement. It is not the white person. It is not the immigrant. It is not the minority. Our enemy is not the misspoken. It is not the individual caught mistaken. It is not the person with whom you vehemently disagree. It is not the other. Did you hear that? Sunners Community Church. Our enemy is not the other. Our enemy 
is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not human beings made in the very image of God. Yes, fallen, but human beings made in the image of God. We are not each other's enemies. And so we ought to see that in this wilderness, even though there are several pitfalls which we can succumb to, there is so much purpose if we decide to be as Jesus and walk through this wilderness. We will not leave or remain the same. So here are some purposes for you if you're continuing to follow along. Here's the first. We'd submit that it's to conform our hearts to His. Has COVID not exposed us more and more? I know it has for me of our deep selfishness and sinfulness. Have not the last few weeks in our nation revealed that there is certainly so much prejudice and pride? And the fact that we've individually and collectively so failed test after test, it says to me that we desperately need the Holy Spirit of God to invade our hearts and to cause us to be convicted in our homes, away from the public eye or the social media feeds. And then we ought to simultaneously move to our neighbors and those around us who, again, just like you and just like me, so desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. And as much as we want to escape this wilderness, as Lise alerted to, alluded to earlier, we should take the example of Jesus. He does not take the easy outs. He does not take the offers that Satan affords to him. Instead, he submits to God and learns obedience through what he suffered. And I pray that the same will be true for us as we follow the way of Jesus in the wilderness. I think again about Peter writing to Christians, dispersed, mind you, scattered out throughout Asia Minor. He says, you rejoice in this. Though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this is sheer grace to us that God would want to give us this gold, this precious gold of genuine faith in Him. And yet again, we have to emphasize we are in so much danger of missing it in this wilderness because all we want to do <laughs> is escape it, to be rid of this place, for the struggle to end faster, which leads us to another purpose. And that is to make us learn how to lean. If we look at this episode again in Mark's gospel, we were gonna notice something significant. It starts, of course, with Jesus uh, going to be baptized by John in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit descending and the voice coming saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then at once the Spirit sends him into the wilderness. And that means that Jesus walked into the wilderness, walked through the wilderness, leaning into his identity as the beloved. He knew who he was. He rested in that. He trusted in that. Again and again and again, he faced each pitfall secure and leaning into that identity. And this is our opportunity to learn that we can do the same. There's this little image from the book Song of Solomon that has stayed with me throughout this season. It's in Song of Solomon, chapter eight, verse five. And it says, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, for those of you who aren't very familiar with the book Song of Solomon, it's in the Old Testament, and it's probably not one that's been quoted very often from the stage here at Centerage, but it is, it's special to me. There's a little, little tiny portion of it on the inside of my wedding band. And if you come to the after Zoom, I'll tell you what that says. But it, uh, it's, it's a love story in the Old Testament, and it's often interpreted as an allegory of the love that Christ has for the church. 
And so here we have in this image, a woman coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. And in that same way, the imagery is of us walking up and out of the wilderness, leaning on Christ, our beloved. We lean, of course, because we're weak, aren't we? We are so weak and we cannot do this, leaning on our own strength or in our own power. That kind of human weakness and frailty, it's assumed in this image. In the same way that human fragility and weakness is assumed throughout scripture, we do not have to deny that or hide that or pretend that it wasn't there or be ashamed of that. It's okay. We can take a breath. This is hard. This wilderness is hard and it's not meant to be easy. And we are not meant to be able to do this in our own strength. We are supposed to feel like we can't do this. The wilderness is that place where finally we stop pretending like we can do this, that we can walk through the wilderness without leaning on the one who loves us and calls us his own. And it's only in leaning that we are strong enough for the next purpose. And that's to prepare us for the next sending. If we go one last time to Luke's account to see what happened to Jesus after this, right? Right after he, he made it out of the wilderness, he made it past all the pitfalls of Satan, he goes into Galilee and he goes to Nazareth, the hometown, and he goes to the synagogue there and he starts to teach. And he pulls out the scroll from Isaiah and he unrolls it. And here's that moment that we talked about in the, earlier in the message where he unrolls it and he starts to read the prophecy and applies it to himself and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And again, we only get Jesus doing and saying these things after he was sent by the world, into the wilderness by God. And then he begins his public ministry. And it's at this point where he gets to begin that and fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah and bring healing and hope and restoration to all the broken places. But again, only after he'd endured and gone through the wilderness. And again, we remember the phrase as the in John 20, 21, which tells us as the Father sent Christ, so we too are being sent. And we can know that there's something about every wilderness that is preparing us, you and I, for our part in the mission of God, this ministry of reconciliation. And even though I don't think this wilderness season is over, I am confident that God will send us out of the wilderness to the world that he loves and is making whole. And we don't know what that will look like for each of you individually, the specifics of how and where God is sending you next and me next and Jed next. But because of that little phrase as that, we can rest assured that it's gonna happen. And we know that it's gonna look something like meeting external and internal needs, breaking chains of bondage, lighting the path of the way, opening eyes, setting people free, from oppression and injustice, proclaiming the good news of what Christ has accomplished with our words and with our deeds, because this is what he did for us and what we're so desperate for him to keep doing for us. And this is what the entire world 
and our nation and our community and our systems and people near and far are so desperate for right this very minute. And this sending as Christ was sent isn't gonna just be for us as individuals. He's gonna send us out collectively as a church family too. Remember earlier in the message, I kind of gave all those examples of ways where it felt like momentum was building and God was sending us out and then COVID hit and they went away. Well, even in this season, we've kept listening. We've kept listening for the voice of God for when he's ready to send us out again. And I'm excited to share with you, Senerge, this morning that he is sending us. He's sending us right now, again, even amidst all some of these limitations and hesitancies that we have. We got word a couple of weeks ago that our partner Community Mission of Hope is absolutely desperate for volunteers right now. They reached out to us. Uh, we know that the economic fallout of this virus is really only just beginning as uh, more and more people are facing cutbacks and layoffs. And so Community Mission of Hope has seen a huge increase in the number of families that are looking for resources from them. In fact, from January 1st through March 15th, they served 588 unduplicated households. But then from March 16th to June 1st, they served 1,204 households. That is a huge increase. And they can't do that kind of frontline ministry without having partners like us to come alongside of them and do all that behind the scenes background work that makes their ministry possible. And so Sunridge, they've asked us to be those partners and that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make this be a way that we can connect this family this summer in person as a church family, in person, something that we're all so desperate to do. I've been working with our Director of Groups and Connections, Heather Fretz, to put together Sunridge Summer Serve teams that will serve together one morning a week at Community Mission of Hope. So pick the day, Monday through Friday, that you can commit to throughout the summer months, June, July, in August, and then decide how you'd like to serve. Front office, data entry, receiving food, packing and sorting food, and distributing food to folks. You'll see a link in the chat box about how you can register. And you can decide based on your needs and preferences what works best for you, but please be assured that they are practicing proper sanitation and social distancing. If you have um, kids older than about 12 or so, you're welcome to volunteer as a family. And like Jed just said, you can sign up. The link is available as early as today. You can go and pick out which day works best for you. If you choose Team Friday, you will be serving with the Owens family because we will be there on Friday. Here we were this past Friday together. Sunridge and all of this, our hope and our prayers that we would be individually and collectively listening for the voice of God for how we can live as sent people. And because we wanna put ourselves in a position to really humble ourselves and seek God's voice about what it looks like to live as sent people in this really difficult time for us as a nation and a community, we want to invite you to join us for a time of fasting and prayer tomorrow Monday, June 8th, here with us. If you're interested, it would, it would just involve fasting from your midday meal tomorrow, and then joining uh, members of your church staff and elders here in the church parking lot from 6 to 7 p.m. We're just gonna come together and sit before the Lord and seek his face and, and join up as a church family in prayer together. We invite you to do that with us. Really looking forward to that tomorrow. And I'd like to invite our worship team to come and take the stage as we respond to this commissioning of God to send us, to continue to live as sent people. Sunridge, please.
please join us in our efforts to make a difference in this world. Let's pray.